23-year-old Shannon Schieber had a bright future ahead of her. A recent graduate of Duke University with high honors, she was accepted to the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business to pursue her doctorate degree. Ready to embark on her five-year pursuit, Shannon made the move from her hometown in Chevy Chase, Maryland, to a quaint apartment in Center City, Philadelphia, a haven for graduate students and young professionals alike. All was going according to plan for the warm and hardworking Shannon, until the early morning hours of May 7, 1998, when she would become the centerpiece case for a string of violent, unsolved crime that was occurring in Center City at the hands of one man. Hey, hey, gang, I'm Lauren. And I'm Brian. Welcome to the City of Brotherly Blood, Episode 5. Today we're setting up camp in what is arguably the heart of Philadelphia, Center City. Not only is this bustling area home to countless amazing restaurants, skyscraping architecture, stores, and nightlife, it is also a historical hotspot boasting the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. Not to mention a couple of my favorites, the Franklin Institute, the Museum of Art, the Barnes, the list goes on and on. I love the Franklin Institute. I know, right? You got to go through the heart. That's the best part. That's seriously the piece de resistance of the Franklin Institute. If you don't go through the heart, I mean, what's the trip worth, honestly? <laughs> it's true. But Center City is no stranger to lofty crime statistics. And as we're going to press with this episode, I looked at a map of documented crimes in the span of just one month. There were thousands. They ranged from narcotics, burglary, and heavily reported theft. And I honestly did not know what the difference between theft and burglary was. Do you? I am going to guess it has something to do with how much the items cost. Okay. That's a solid guess, but that's not actually right. I've never thought about that. So the difference is that with burglary, you actually have to enter a structure with the intent to commit a crime. So I'm guessing that means you have to break into, say, a jewelry store or a bank or wherever you are. So you're saying it's like something that's premeditated rather than like, oh, hey, I like your kicks. I'm going to take them. Yeah. (laughs) Or like somebody leaving a purse lying around and you're just like, yoink, and you just walk (laughs) away. I digress. On the map I looked at, there was a sprinkling of assault, but largely the crimes were nonviolent. So when Shannon Schieber moved to Philly in 1998, she took up residence in an apartment around 23rd and Spruce Streets, which at the time was known to be relatively quiet, dare I say, uneventful area, where less than 3% of the city's homicides took place. Now, like, I don't know, when we're talking about homicides, 3% is still a lot. I know. (laughs) And just to pinpoint it to that exact area like well at 23rd and spruce streets there's only three percent homicides i I think if that was listed on (laughs) zillow i'd I'd still be like i I will go elsewhere (laughs) pass (laughs) but beginning in june through august of 1997 what was happening was a very opportunistic string of rapes by a home intruder just blocks away from shannon's apartment This would have been right around the time Shannon had just moved in as the school year would begin for her in August of 97. 
And the last reported rape was by a woman on Pine Street on August 13th of 97. Even though the home intruder hadn't been caught, all seemed to fall silent into the new school year. And it wouldn't be until May of 1998, as the weather turned warmer, that the Center City rapist would resurface. Shannon Schieber was rounding out her first year at the Wharton School of Business, and by all accounts was a high achiever. Between her studies, she managed to venture out into the city to tutor, and even helped administer an economics program at West Catholic High, which is my alma mater. Woo! Go Burrs! Go Burrs! Brian married into the Burr family. That was when I found out what a Burr was. (laughs) (laughs) And you were sorely disappointed. It's unique. I love it. And I actually found a People magazine article where one of my former teacher's sister, Denise, talks about Shannon, saying, She could really relate to the kids. We called her our Shannon. Sister Denise, you're a treasure. You taught me how not to break my egg in child development class. So I credit you for being able to keep my human children unbroken thus far. She's doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, they're, they're doing relatively well. No stitches. <laughs> Anyway, despite being a very thoughtful, outgoing personality, Shannon found life at Penn isolating and unsafe overall. She filed a complaint with the university police that a fellow student at Wharton, Yuval Barur, was following her for two months, sending her disturbing emails, and that someone had tried to break into her car. An old friend from undergrad, Tamika Hill, said Shannon was even considering a transfer back to Duke. But Shannon wasn't one to turn her back to a problem. On the afternoon of May 6th, she actually had a meeting with a school official to talk about how to make doctoral students feel more integrated into campus life. That evening, her brother Sean was planning to drive up from Washington, D.C., go out with Shannon, and spend the night at her place. But Shannon told Sean she did have some studying to do, So he decided to stay in D.C., leave her to her studies, and meet her for lunch the following day instead. But the next day, Shannon would not meet Sean for their lunch date. After Sean stopped by her job at Vance Hall, her co-workers told him she didn't show for work and seemed concerned. This immediately rung alarm bells for Sean. He drove to Shannon's apartment and noticed from the street that her second-floor balcony door was open. Sean knocked on Shannon's apartment door with no answer. He ran into Shannon's neighbor, and the two men got to work breaking down the door. Now, you might be wondering why the hasty breaking and entering maneuvers by these guys. As rightfully worried as Sean was, shouldn't they have called the police first? Well, at about 2 a.m. that morning, the same neighbor, Pramat Magrilli, already did. While watching TV with his girlfriend Leah around 1 a.m., Parmatma heard sounds from Shannon's apartment that made him believe that she was in a domestic dispute. Leah, on the other hand, thought the noise was actually coming from outside on Manning Street. After puttering around a bit discussing the source of the noise, Leah went to bed. Parmatma stayed up watching TV and shortly after 2 a.m. heard a scream coming from Shannon's apartment. This concerned him enough that he crossed the hall and knocked on her door without a response. He even shouted and tried opening the door unsuccessfully. I have to say, Parm is ballsy. I don't know that I would physically insert myself into a situation like that. Yeah, I mean, you never really know what you're getting yourself into if you're going to just at 2 a.m. walk across the hall and say, 
you know, hey, it sounds like you guys are having a fight. Yeah, you can quickly become part of that altercation. Absolutely. So after being unable to make contact with Shannon, he called 911. And we read a transcript of how the call went, and this is how it went down. Parm says, My next door neighbor, I just heard her yelling for help. We're on the second floor. We're on one side and she's on the other. I just heard her yell help. I knocked on the door and I just heard like a choking type sound. And I just called. The dispatcher put out the call as priority one, report of a female screaming at 251 South 23rd Street. In less than five minutes, Officer Stephen Woods and Officer Ray Scherf arrived at Shannon's apartment building. First, the officers stopped at the ground floor apartment with the address they were given and asked the woman living there if she called the police about a scream. She says no and directs them to another entrance of the building around the corner on Manning Street. This is where things go off the rails. At the Manning Street entrance, they meet Parmatma Greeley and Amy Reed, who lived in the first floor apartment directly under Shannon. They proceed to the door of Shannon's apartment and knock with no response. For the following several minutes, the officers interview Greeley, Reed, and a neighbor directly above Shannon on the third floor, Christine Ritter. Both Amy and Christine stated that they didn't hear a scream, but Parmatma's panic shuffling about outside woke them up. And Parm stuck to his original story. Officers Woods and Scherf inspected the exteriors of Shannon's apartment and saw no signs of forced entry. They knocked again more forcefully with their nightsticks, no response. The end result was that the officers instructed the tenants to call 911 again if they heard any additional suspicious noises. At 2.16 a.m., Officer Scherf signs off the call saying, yeah, that's going to be unfounded, meaning no crime has been committed. Yeah, and I actually asked my dad about that, and he said it was probably a mistake to call it unfounded. They really just didn't have enough information to go on to say that that actually didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't they... I don't know, try to try to forcefully open the door, well, do anything. We're going to talk about that right now. So we did start to wonder why the officers made no attempts to gain entry to Shannon's apartment after the account. So we did a little bit of digging. Apparently, Shannon's parents, Sylvester and Vicki Schieber, brought a lawsuit against the officers, which we'll talk about a little later. In this document of the suit was testimony from those same tenants of 251 South 23rd Street. So it was Parm, Amy, and Christine, and they all gave their testimony. It was the opinion of officers Wood and Scherf, Amy Reed, and Christine Ritter, that Parmatma Greeley expressed some uncertainty about what he heard and where the noise had come from. As a result, the officers were hesitant to break down the door of Shannon's apartment. While Parm Greeley did concede that he couldn't be 100% sure, he testified that he still believed the door should be knocked down. Amy Reed supported her neighbor and said the officers put the pressure on Parm, asking, how would you feel if we kicked down the door and nothing happened? So to me, this is enough to make anyone second-guess themselves. You have two probably burly officers looking at you and saying, can you really be sure what you heard? I mean, I mean, they're like almost intimidating him because I feel like if I said that 
and somebody kicked down our neighbor's door and it turns out they were just fine. Yeah. I would feel like... Mortified. I would feel like a genuine jackass, yeah. but I, I would also feel like... All Relieved. Right, look, I was concerned about you and I was concerned enough that I wanted to kick down the door to make sure you're okay. Right. But but these these officers the were officers making them feel are, like are you putting them do on that. the spot. Yeah. They're absolutely putting them on the spot. And sometimes a person is right in front of you and you mishear them. So it's not unusual for Parm to be like, "Well, I can't be a hundred percent sure that's what I heard, but you know, it was suspicious enough that I wanted to take action." So Parm testified that despite telling officers that he'd feel embarrassed, he still thought they should knock down the door, but they didn't. And there would be no more sounds coming from Shannon's apartment after that. So returning back to Sean and Parm's effort to break down Shannon's door, they were successful. Sean was the first to discover Shannon, undressed, lying face down on the floor. According to Parm, Sean immediately dropped to the ground and began sobbing. And for the last time, Parm called 911 on Shannon's behalf. Yeah, that is completely heartbreaking. I just imagine that scene and your older sibling coming and looking. Oh, gosh, I can't even. No. So five months after Shannon's death, her parents, Sylvester and Vicki, had been without help in their request for further investigation of the 911 call. Feeling that they had no other options, they filed a civil rights lawsuit against Officer Woods, Officer Scherf, and the city of Philadelphia. But in 2003, after a five-year saga... The case against the officers was dismissed before it even reached a jury. In order for parties acting on behalf of the state, in this case the officers, to be held liable for their actions, it takes more than just negligence. The actions have to be enough to shock the conscience. Nothing that the officers had done met that criteria. But the Sheber's tragedy would go on to ignite the search for the man responsible for Shannon's death and possibly responsible for the other nearby rapes. The most obvious suspect was the man Shannon had filed a harassment complaint against, Yuval Baror. I've read conflicting stories about his relationship with Shannon. Some friends said he just developed an obsession with her, but Yuval says that they had a very brief and tumultuous five-week relationship. Honestly, if it was relationship turned sour... That would make more sense as to why he was sending aggressive emails. Yeah, it makes no sense to me that he would just all of a sudden start instigating these harassing emails if they had no contact whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or, you know, playing devil's advocate here, maybe he was trying, he thought they were having a five-week relationship and she was... <laughs> I mean, he was just delusional. Yeah. <laughs> Well, either way, Yuval was cooperative with the investigation and cleared early on with DNA testing. So who was Shannon's attacker? Believing he was the same man responsible for the five other rapes that previously happened in the neighborhood, FBI profiler Fred Kingston compiled a report painting a picture of a troubled man who actually had no intentions of harming his victims and saw them more as, quote, dates. The man would even try to engage his victims in pillow talk after raping them. He told one woman she should put bars on her windows to prevent future attacks. That is seriously messed up. It's absurd. Could you imagine someone coming into your house, sexually assaulting you, and saying, Hey, I got in, but here's some advice so other people don't. 
Like that's really it's so disturbing that yeah. somebody actually thinks that way. They that's how you know that that person knows what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. Well, the profiler Kingston believed it was Shannon's powerful fight combined with Parm Greeley's knock at the door that ultimately spooked the attacker and provoked him to strangle Shannon to keep her quiet. As comprehensive as this profile was, it would not yield any matches. The case basically went cold until three years later in 2001, when the Center City rapist would finally be apprehended, all the way in Colorado. And his name was Troy Graves. Well, a bit of background on our guy, Troy. He was born on May 4th, 1972, to Earl and Mikhail Graves in Minnesota. Earl was a welder for General Motors, and according to Troy, was also a physically abusive heroin addict. Troy also recounted that, being of mixed race, he had something of a brutal childhood, enduring mocking from black and white kids alike. Likely as a result of the unstable home life, Mikhail divorced Earl in 1986, and 13-year-old Troy relocated to PA with his mom and older brother Mark, who was 20 at the time. He dropped out of Ben Salem High School in 1989 and worked various jobs around the city, taking up residence in West Philly and Center City. He put on a great nice guy front and was no stranger to legitimate romantic relationships. He had long-term relationships with two women while living in Philly. Troy and Sherry Ward ran with the same crowd of retail workers in a Bucks County strip mall when they met in 1989. She was working at TJ Maxx and Troy at a movie theater just a few stores down. Troy played coy. (laughs) (laughs) You can't plan that, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he did. And he told everyone but Sherry that he wanted to ask her out. Tired of waiting, Sherry made the first move, and the two had a five-year courtship. All right, pull it together. (laughs) Oh, goodness. When Sherry graduated high school in 1991, the pair moved in together in West Philly so Sherry could attend Temple. The couple even worked together at Samaric Theater on Chestnut Street. By then, Sherry noticed a change in Troy. He seemed unmotivated and flat. Still, they moved to 7th and Pine in 1993 with another female roommate. This is when Troy began his nightly disappearing acts. At first, he told Sherry that he couldn't sleep and was outside stargazing. How romantic. Right? Leave your girl inside and go out by yourself in West Philly and stargaze. Solo stargazing. One night, a neighbor caught Troy on the rooftop of their apartment building peering into people's houses and then dart back into their ground floor apartment. He called the police, but by the time they arrived, shining a light in Sherry's face and questioning her, Troy was back in bed and playing clueless. Still, Troy wasn't deterred. His absences only increased after that. The final straw for Sherry came in 1994 when Troy decided to take the path of least resistance and spy on their roommate in the shower. Their roommate was understandably disgusted, and thus Graves was ceremoniously kicked out. Yeah, and with few other options, Troy moved to South Carolina, where his mother was then living. 
he got a job at a chain bookstore where he met Elizabeth Robinson. Any guesses what the chain bookstore was? Ooh, ooh. Uh, Borders or Barnes & Noble? I don't, I don't... Are there more? I don't know. I I thought... Wasn't there another one? The Walden, Walden Books? Walden Books. Oh my gosh. I feel like I had one of those little keychain tags for Walden Books. <laughs> and I would go in like as an elementary schooler and buy a bookmark. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So Elizabeth Robinson was pretty taken with Troy, and she recalled, I was extremely, extremely impressed by his intelligence. He liked to read. He loved anything that had to do with animals and nature. He's very gentle, very well-spoken. So Troy and Elizabeth developed a solid friendship and discovered they were both planning to move to Philadelphia. Now, imagine the gall of this. Troy told Elizabeth she could stay with him and his roommate until she found her own place. Who was Troy's mystery roommate? Sherry Ward, his ex-girlfriend. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So Troy was hoping to reconcile with Sherry. But by the time Elizabeth arrived in Philly, Troy and Sherry were officially donezo. So it would just be Elizabeth and Troy shacking up at 10th and Pine. It didn't take long for the two to start dating. Elizabeth said in some ways, Troy was an excellent boyfriend in that he shared her love of literature. They even read Tolstoy and Machiavelli aloud together. They had long conversations and went on shopping trips. But unfortunately, old habits die hard. Troy soon began disappearing in the middle of the night for hours on end. For a while, Elizabeth, too, bought the insomnia excuse. But by 1995 to 1996, Troy was going out several nights a week. A couple times, he came home with his clothes ripped, and he'd tell Elizabeth he'd been roughed up by the police. Fearing Troy was into unsavory nightly activities, Elizabeth broke up with him. But she remained in the apartment through 1997, which was a time when Troy was climbing into nearby apartments and raping women. But at this point, the buzz about a serial rapist hadn't started yet. It's said that the first two women who reported the attacks weren't even believed. So Elizabeth didn't even conceive Troy was out raping, just possibly into other crimes. One morning, Troy came home with scratches on his face, and Elizabeth was like, oh, hell no. And she moved out immediately. I mean, what were his excuses that the police were roughing him up for? Who knows? He probably just uh, said, like, I was out at a weird hour, and they suspected me of something, so I got beat up. I found a medium dipper. What the heck is a medium dipper? I don't know. Stargazing? and I. (laughs) And they were like, there's no medium dipper. Let me beat you up. The belt of Orion. <laughs> I found the shoelaces of... I, I don't know. I even have my telescope. <laughs> it was a credible excuse. Oh my God. Well, in the spring of 98, Troy moved back to West Philly. It would be that May that he would rape and murder Shannon Schieber. In the winter of 99, police finally linked DNA evidence from two previous rape scenes to the blood and semen found in Shannon's apartment. And soon after, a composite sketch of Troy's face was posted on every Center City store window. 
Both Elizabeth and Sherry had seen the posters. Deep down, Sherry suspected that it was Troy, but her friends insisted that it couldn't have been. He wasn't like that. Even a child who was with Elizabeth at the time said, well, that looks like Troy. She responded, no, that's a bad man. That's not Troy. To Elizabeth, he was a person who'd try to intervene on an attack rather than be the attacker. Except when he was coming home with obvious defense wounds, right? Right. But Troy managed to stay under the radar and in the fall of 1999 enlisted into the Air Force and was stationed in Colorado. Elizabeth and Troy actually stayed in touch, exchanging emails, and she was shocked to find that after only a few months, he was hastily and secretly married to a 25-year-old. Her name was Amy Wade. She was a video producer and the daughter of a Seventh-day Adventist minister. Amy did later tell her parents and said that they married for financial reasons, but planned on including them in a traditional second ceremony in Maryland that June. So, in case you haven't noticed yet, this case is all about patterns, patterns, patterns. Soon after Troy and Amy were married, she caught on to her husband's, quote, insomnia problem. Again, he'd come home with mystery scratches, and this time... Troy used the excuse that he was doing yard work at night, even though they only had a tiny patch of ground. During this same time, between May and August of 2001, a series of six rapes and sexual assaults were reported in Fort Collins, Colorado, very close to where the newlyweds lived. Amy began fearing the worst. Meanwhile, the Philly PD would receive a bulletin about a series of rapes from Fort Collins, Colorado, that rang a few bells, to say the least. A victim reported that her attacker approached her from behind, and when she finally acquiesced, he became gentle like a boyfriend. Does this sound familiar? So obviously the police departments put two and two together because this sounded eerily similar to the attacker that was in Philadelphia. And toward the end of his Colorado spree, Troy would make one mistake that would lead to his capture. He left a baseball cap behind at his fifth stop. The DNA was a match to the rapes in Philadelphia the Philly PD began cross-referencing the names of suspects with the two locations, Philly and Fort Collins. And bingo, Troy Graves. Well, at this point, it's now 2002, and Troy and Amy have been moved to the Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you can believe it, up to this point, Troy had not a lick of a criminal record and no fingerprints on file. Since the case was circumstantial, the Fort Collins PD reached out to Troy to come in for an interview. Amy and Troy went to the police station and were separated immediately. Amy told police of her husband's nightly outings, but said she believed he was having an affair. Troy denied any sex crimes, denied knowing anything about it. He also denied the police his fingerprints until a warrant was issued compelling him to give them. Game, set, match. Troy was arrested and booked on April 23, 2002. And being no dummy, he knew the trial in Colorado would not go in his favor. He pleaded guilty in exchange for a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Pennsylvania wanted to seek the death penalty, but Shannon Schieber's parents, being devoutly religious, did not want to pursue such a sentencing. Troy entered into a plea agreement and got life plus 60. 
So to this day, Troy sits at Sterling Correctional Facility in Colorado, which is one of the state's most secure prisons. And it seems that inmates there actually get a pretty holistic life. Back in September of 2019, they actually put on a traveling production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Do we know Troy's role? I don't know if he was casted in it, but I can only assume that it really appealed to his literary heart. I feel like, you know, with that, you know, being what it is, I feel like there's there's some sort of irony in a prison doing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Well, I read the article about it, and they said there's obvious parallels. Yeah. But it gives them an outlet of some sort. So I guess that's good. He's never getting out of there. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) Well, that just about wraps it up for episode five. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Be sure to join us next time for episode six. We're getting there halfway to the dozen. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what happens with Lauren Adlibs. I I hope you all know she was just... (laughs) Like air rowing a boat. (laughs) That was halfway to the dozen in air row. (laughs) Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Brian. And I'm Lauren. And this has been the City of Brotherly Blood. Thanks, guys.